0: The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By CanDo, providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. By Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water. By 374 Water, pioneering a new era in sustainability. By Woodard & Curran, High Quality Consulting Engineering, Science, and Operations Services. By Interra, Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow. And by Xylem, Let's Solve Water. This is Session 224.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now, here's your host, Dave McGimsey.
0: Hello, and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter, Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thank you so much for joining me. Hope everyone is having a great fall and is set to enjoy a terrific holiday season. Today's guest is one of the definitive thought leaders in the water industry, in my opinion, I had Manny Teodoro on several years ago to speak on water governance, and he returns in this episode to discuss the book he co-authored and recently published called The Prophets of Distrust. If you've heard Manny speak before, you know how good he is and how good this episode will be. If not, get ready for a great episode, because Manny does not disappoint when he describes the relationship between water systems and our trust in government. He is absolutely fantastic and unparalleled. As you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of each show, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, Interra, and Xylem. That, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to support water industry, thought leadership, and education. Thank you all, and I'd like for you to do me a favor for you, the listener, please. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, thank your boss or your contact at the sponsor firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of the water industry, education, thought leadership they support, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing a podcast on, it'd be greatly appreciated. And of course, we'll help others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Well, without further ado, let's get to our awesome guest, Manny Teodoro, assistant professor at the Robert La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Manny, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on again. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's uh, terrific to have you back. I know some things have changed in your life since the last time uh, you were on the podcast. You want to fill us in on what's new?
1: Sure. I think last time I was on, for starters, uh, probably the biggest thing, I lived in Texas at that time. I was on the faculty at Texas A&M. I moved north during the middle of the pandemic. I joined the faculty at the University of Wisconsin. That That's the biggest news, but the work still remains the same. I'm still working on water policy management, regulation, uh, finance. Uh, just we're doing it here in the, the snow belt instead of the sun belt.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. So you moved mid-pandemic. Tell, just before we kind of get into the guts of this, uh, this podcast, tell, tell me a little about how it was moving during the pandemic. I, I can only imagine...
1: Yeah, it was a weird experience. I got to tell you, it's starting with something as simple as as trying to buy a house. (laughs) So uh, I I came North, you know, the Madison housing market was white hot. I flew up North um, for for 48 hours to try to find a home Uh, and looked at about 20 houses and in 48 hours uh, put in a bid, got outbid. But because of the pandemic, they were scheduling home showing between the hot market and, and the pandemic. They're scheduling home showings in 20-minute increments. So you could go come to a look at a house. You got about 20 minutes in the house, and then you got to move on to the next place. So uh, I got outbid on one house, and I ended up uh, buying the house I'm sitting in right now after being in it for about 15 minutes. Uh, it, it, that was one of the weirder experiences of, of the pandemic. And then the other one was... The first year I was on the faculty in, in Wisconsin, I was in my office twice. Once was to move all my stuff in, and then the other is to go in one time because I forgot a book. But we weren't allowed in our offices. We weren't on campus. You know, I, I didn't meet most of my colleagues in person for the first 16 months I worked here. That was that was strange to, to meet all your colleagues with little faces on electronic screens. Uh, we all got to know Zoom and the phrase, I think you're on mute. Uh, but that—that's most of how I formed relationships here. So I still feel like I'm just getting to know uh, Madison and and Wisconsin more generally. Uh, but but uh, you know, co- I have first-world problems. My my, my COVID experience—if uh, if the worst I experience is, is some social awkwardness with colleagues and um, struggles to get into my office—well, I'm doing all right.
0: I think the period of time in which you were out of the office and kind of isolated was. May have done society some good because you had a lot of time to write a book, right?
1: I, I did. I did uh, with with a couple of co-authors, Samantha Zilke at the University of Iowa, and 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 david switzer at the university of missouri sam was a, a phd student when we started this book and she was still in texas and so she actually experienced the big ice storm that came through texas uh in in 2021 uh, at a time when you know i i had actually just left so i i timed that well she <laughs> timed it unfortunately but we did have some time to work on the book um and that 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 was a blessing of that period of time and i and i think we uh we we're pretty pleased with how things turned out and thus far it's been pretty well received.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd love to. So so tell us a little about the book. What what's the title and and if you could give a thumbnail on what what subject matter you're covering, that'd be great.
1: Sure, the book is called The Prophets of Distrust. It's from Cambridge University Press, just published back in August. And at one level, the book is about water. On it's about the choices that people make to to drink uh, to what we call commercial water, which you would probably normally think of as just bottled water, but we're also interested in, in those kiosks that are in street corners or, or in supermarkets. So at, the, at one level, this book is about water and consumer behavior, but at another level, it's about basic services and the relationship between people and their government. You know, our, our whole book is sort of motivated by two Graphs or one graph combined that shows up in the very first chapter. And one uh, shows this enormous uh, meteoric rise of the bottled water industry in the United States that has uh, more than tripled over the last 20 years. Now, this year, Americans will spend about $36 billion on commercial bottled water. And that's not even talking about the, the home delivery services or the, the in-store kiosks or the street corner kiosks. That's just bottled water. So we've had this just enormous growth over this period of time, which would be remarkable for any industry. But what's weird about the bottled water industry is that growth is, is happening in a sector where people have access to a, a much cheaper, uh, more rigorously regulated product that comes out of their tap. So that that's, that's a, a curiosity. But the other graph that's happening simultaneously, over that same period of time, we've seen a monotonic decline of trust in institutions generally and in government specifically. If you look over the last 20 years, bottled water has been growing at an average of around 5% a year uh, in terms of its overall market. And the Pew Center Research Center's trust in government has been falling at about 5% a year over that same period of time. And what we want to argue in this book is that those two trends are not coincidences, that they relate to one another, and that the choices that people make about drinking water reflect their relationships with government, both the local governments that, that provide their utilities, but also the, the, the state and federal agencies that oversee and, and regulate those utilities. We, we think that, that, that there's a relationship between people's behaviors as consumers and their identities in, in politics as citizens.
0: It's my understanding bottled water started really taking off, or commercial water started really taking off in the 70s.
1: Well, I would put it a little bit later. I mean, okay. I think it, it, I think it emerged as a, as a product perhaps in the 1970s, but it didn't really start to take off in a big way until the 1990s.
0: Okay. That's uh, fair. That uh, I, and I'm just kind of curious, does the book cover, cause the seventies you had Watergate where that's one, uh, event that created distrust in the government. Granted, that's the national government versus mm-hmm. local governments that operate utilities. Uh, but, but the, the, the idea would still be out there, and it also was the decade in which the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act were adopted.
1: That's a really good point. Um, that is, we didn't go back that far in terms of tracing the emergence of the bottled water industry, uh, but but you're right. I mean, trust uh, in governments waxed and waned over a long period of time, um, but it, it's reached historic lows at this stage, at least during the, the during the polling era, uh, and and we we think that that decline. It has a relationship with the growth in the bottled water industry. You know, you know look, what we want to say is, is again, at on one level, it's about water, but another level, it's really about basic services. And we want to argue that water is about as basic as service as you're going to get. It's this literally essential service, this, this product that comes um, into our homes. Uh, we rely on it. We literally cannot live without it. Uh, and so, governments really from the beginning of time have established and maintained their legitimacy on their ability to provide for basic people's basic needs. Uh, that's not a revolutionary idea. It's right there in our Declaration of Independence, right? If governments gain, gain their legitimacy by providing for people's basic needs, they lose their legitimacy by failing to provide for those basic needs. So, uh we you know, we want to argue that these two things you know, coincide and that the people who are least trustful of of government are also the most likely to drink commercial water.
0: Why are the people that are most likely to distrust government, the largest consumers of commercial water?
1: Yeah, well, it's a deep and and complicated question to answer, but what what it boils down to is that, that drinking tap water is in some ways the ultimate act of faith in government. Uh, If you're, Local government is your water provider, which is the case for about 85% of Americans. Then you are taking into your body something that your local government made. That's a, that's a profound act of faith. Even if you serve, even if you live in a place that's served by an investor owned utility, that investor owned utility operates under a pretty sophisticated regulatory regime that is all established by government. So even if my, my water utility is private, Drinking the water that comes from my tap is still an act of faith in government. So why do we see this relationship between trust in government and and uh, drinking water? Well, it, it comes from a couple of things. One is is that when people have direct experiences, first and most obviously, people who have direct experiences of tap water failure trust their tap water less. That's not especially profound or, or uh, surprising, right? If you've had a lot of water main breaks in your neighborhood, you come to Boil water notices. You come to distrust the water. But the, one of the more surprising things we find is that is what we call the hyperopic effect or hyperopia. Well, hyperopia is that that uh, condition where you see things in the distance better than you see things close up. You're farsighted. You know, you have to go get glasses to correct that farsightedness. Well, we see hyperopia with tap water. Everybody who's listening to this podcast knows about the Flint water crisis. Most of the people who haven't, aren't listening to this podcast know about the Flint water crisis. People across the world know about the Flint water crisis. One of the surprising things that happened with Flint was not that people in Flint started drinking bottled water, but rather that people around the United States started drinking bottled water and started questioning their relationship with their own utilities as a result of something that happened in Flint. So it's not just what you experience personally, but also what you observe elsewhere, And and maybe the most surprising thing was that the chief vector of that distrust was not geographic space, but rather social identity. I'll explain what I mean by that. When the Flint water crisis happens, bottled water sales go up around the country. People start distrusting their own tap water. But they start distrusting it most in the places where people were socially most similar to the people of Flint. So it's low socioeconomic status. Uh, racial minor and ethnic minority populations that responded most strongly. So it's not so much how far I am from a place where a drinking water failure occurs, but rather the degree to which I can identify with the victims of that failure. So what's happening here, people see these failures occur. They see them in their own lives or they witness them in other lives, people who are, who are like themselves, and then they respond by abandoning tap water and uh, turning to commercial water instead. And in so doing, they abandon uh, not just the consumption of that water, but also the, uh, the, the need to or the impulse to demand better services of their own. Utility. So you end up with this kind of vicious feedback cycle.
0: So let me ask you this, uh, because that premise is not what I would have expected that, that people of the same socioeconomic class as flint were the ones who started buying commercial water as a result of flint i would have thought people that were more economically well off would be the ones to do it because you look at you know you go to the store and you see uh you can buy the ionized water you can buy yeah. all the all the crazy kind of designer waters that are now lining the supermarket shelves
1: no it's totally counterintuitive in that sense i think for those of us who who You know, I'll speak for myself. Twenty, twenty five years ago, when I first started encountering bottled water in large numbers, I thought it was weird. Right. I think a lot of us looked at that and thought of it as kind of this novelty. Well, it's a sign that people have too much money, because why are you going to go pay the equivalent of two dollars a gallon for uh, a little bottle of Aquafina when you can get a penny a gallon coming out of your tap, that that it was weird. And so look, you know, there's a lot of weird luxury goods in the world. There's a lot of things that people buy as status symbols or because they have money to spend and they, they think it's better for them somehow. But the surprising thing in the data we find, and lots of other researchers have found the same thing, bottled water consumption is inversely related to income. In other words, the higher your income, the higher your socioeconomic status, the more likely you are to drink tap water and unfiltered tap water, just plain straight tap water. High, uh, high socioeconomic status people, high education, high income tend to drink tap water. Low socioeconomic status people with low, low levels of education and low incomes tend to drink bottled water. So the title of the book, Profits of Distrust, refers to the profits that the commercial water firms make based on distrust in tap water. But those profits are not reaped from the wealthy, they're reaped from the poor. That's who's buying bottled water. It's it's poor folks who distrust their water systems and they distrust the government that provide those, those, that water. They distrust the government that's supposed to be regulating those systems. And we see differences in behavior even within a single community where everyone's got the same water source, but the higher income folks will drink the tap water, and the lower income folks will drink bottled water. And it's it's uh, exactly backward from what you would think of as a, a traditional sort of economic theory of of, of uh, price elasticity uh, or income elasticity, rather that it's it's the wealthier people who are buying the tap water, the poor folks who are buying the bottled water, and that cannot be anything but a response to distrust. Otherwise, there's there's no there's no reasonable explanation for why someone should pay 200 times the price on a unit cost basis for a lightly regulated commercial product instead of the more heavily regulated uh, 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 in-home convenient product that comes from your tap.
0: Did your research look at the the people of economic means perhaps living in a wealthier area, which uh, would would be served by a more "Quote unquote reliable utility, i.e., a utility that doesn't constantly have breaks, maybe a newer utility that has newer pipes because it's it's uh, the, the wealthy people moved out of the older crumbling infrastructure area into a new is could that explain any of this?
1: Certainly, that's some of what's going on here. I mean, most of this book is written using national data, right? We've we've got some more. In-depth analyses of certain uh, regions of the United States. We've got certain state-specific analyses, but most of what we're looking at is across the United States. So we're looking at a at a variety of communities, some more affluent, some poorer on average. Um, but I think that the thing that where that, that really gives us confidence that what's happening here is about trust in government is where we see differences in attitudes and behaviors within a single uh, utility service area where you've got different people responding in different ways, not based on what's coming out of the tap, but based on who they are, right? Based on their own social and economic identity. But no, you're absolutely right. Look, we don't think people are making up their uh, fear of tap water. There are problems out there. And if you live in a community that's had a lot of problems, you're going to be more distrustful. The The people are not Crazy with this stuff, but we do think that what's, what's surprising again is this sort of vector of distrust that is the people who identify with uh, places where those failures occur change their behaviors in ways that don't necessarily reflect conditions in their own communities. You know, we're all Flint now. Anybody who works in the water sector, you're talking with someone over casual conversation, the Flint water crisis is going to come up. Nowadays, it's also Jackson, Mississippi these these are very high profile events and that's what people associate with uh with tap water in the united states and that's not fair to the people who run the water systems because most places are not flint or jackson most places are doing really well but that's the perception and our and our book is really about those perceptions it's, and it and it, it those perceptions flow as much along identity lines as they do along you know source water quality lines so it's, it's the people who identify who who can see the victims of of water failure in themselves and and adapt accordingly. So uh, those folks will withdraw from the tap water uh, utility and start paying for this much more expensive private product. And I want to I want to emphasize this too. When they do that, when a consumer chooses what what we would call exit, you know, they choose to exit tap water and, and choose bottled water instead. What it means is they are also choosing not to voice. And I want to, I want to take a second to unpack that day because it's Absol- so important. Absolutely, Yeah. If I'm unhappy with my drinking water, I have a, cause it's coming out of my tap. I have two choices or I guess I have three choices. One is I can shut up and take it right. And just live with the fact that I, I don't trust what's coming from my tap. The other choices I have are to, uh, to, to complain to my utility And say, uh, hey, you guys need to do better. I don't like all the main breaks. I think the product coming out of my faucet tastes funny, and I don't trust its quality. I go to my city council or my my special district board, or I go to my regulatory agency, and I tell them I I want my utility to do better. Or I can just quit quit worrying about it. Instead, go to the uh, grocery store and pay $2 a gallon for a case of Aquafina. Now, the choice to use voice or exit turns on whether I think my voice will do any good. I'm only going to complain to you, Utility, if I believe that you are both capable and ethically responsible enough to respond to my complaints. If I believe that you are incompetent, or if I believe that you don't care about me, then it doesn't make any sense for me to talk to you. It doesn't make any sense for me to use my voice and come and complain, to, to come to a meeting, to write a letter, to, to contact my regulator. It doesn't make any sense for me to do any of those things if I believe the institutions are fundamentally incompetent or evil. Why would I bother trying to convince you to help me if I think that you hate me? Right? It, it doesn't make any sense. What I'll do instead is go to the commercial provider where you know it costs me a lot more. It might cost me 100, 200 dollars a month to get sufficient drinking water for my family, but at least I'll be confident that what I'm getting is good. Whether by the way it actually is good is a different question, but the customer will perceive it to be good. They will perceive it to be of higher quality. And so that choice silence is my voice and instead i vote with my dollars in that sense and i go get uh, water from a commercial provider and here's the worst part dave the utility will never know they're failing the utility will never hear from me because i never have confidence in using my voice so the utility managers who want to do well for their customers who are listening to their customers, who, who want to respond to customers will never hear from those who distrust them the most. And the people who distrust them the most are going to be the, the poor. It's going to be the racial and ethnic minorities. So silence in that sense, the silence of your customer base, you know, that silence has an ethnic accent.
0: I think this is self-evident from, from our discussion, but why should utility leaders sit up and take notice of all this?
1: Yeah, well, let's start with with the obvious that that I think most utility leaders are in this for the right reasons. They're they're here to serve. Like the, the, our our purpose is to help public health and economic prosperity. And we <laughs> we when we fail to do that, we want to know about it so we can fix the problems. But let let's get a little less idealistic and more real realpolitik for a minute. Why why should why should you care even if you don't care about public health? Well, it's a fair question. And I think for a long time, water sector utility leaders have looked at bottled water as kind of a weird novelty. Uh, You know, the the water that people actually drink, that they take into their bodies, is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the water that a utility sells, right? It's it's a rounding error, right? They're not going to be losing massive amounts of sales revenue because people are drinking bottled water instead of tap water. However... What you lose when you lose customer confidence is support for the infrastructure investments that, and operational investments that we need. One of the things that we have, that we find in, in the book, late in the book, is that people who drink uh, tap water are more supportive of investments in public infrastructure, are more supportive of rate increases that are needed to maintain the infrastructure. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's obvious. I don't know i don't know that that really is obvious there are two ways to think about about it if i'm happy with my tap water system and you ask me hey manny we'd like you to pay for a rate increase we want to rate, increase your rates 10 percent to make needed investments no well, i could respond in one of two ways as a voter or as a, as a customer of the utility i could say either well hey that if you say that we need that money um i'm pretty happy with my tap water go ahead and raise my rates 10 percent because i'm pretty happy with it and i want it to keep being good or i could respond by saying well why do you need more money out of me if it ain't broke don't fix it my water service is fine stop asking me to pay more everything's fine here and i think the latter is the attitude that a lot of elected officials take right now water rate increases are always bad people are always going to be unhappy with them well whether I support or oppose a rate increase, then it's not necessarily obvious. If I trust the utility to be a good steward of my resources, then I am likely to say, yeah, go ahead and raise my rates. Because even if it, my rates go up, five, my price goes up five bucks this month, that's still cheaper than a case of bottled water. That's That's still a good deal for me. It's still a great value for me. Now, let's look at the other side. Suppose I'm a bottled water drinker because I don't trust my tap water. I think my tap water is terrible. Utility comes to me and says, Manny, we want to raise your rates. I have one of two ways to respond. I could say, well, uh, utility, I don't like my service, but if you raise my rates and improve the service, maybe I'll be happy, right? Like Maybe maybe you'll make an investment and the system will get better and I'll be happy and I'll be content and then I'll be happy to, to let you raise my rates. Or I could say, my utility already does a lousy job. They must be incompetent or they must not care about me. Uh, and so I'm going to oppose this rate increase. And what we find empirically is that the people who drink tap water are supportive of future rate increases. People who drink bottled water oppose future rate increases. And again, this ties back to trust. Yes. I need to trust that my utility is going to be a good steward of that rate revenue if i trust in it then i'll trust them. Are you tell me you need that rate increase to improve my system, okay. If i don't trust you, then i'll say no way. Uh that's just throwing good money after bad.
0: Absolutely. So how do we rebuild that trust? What what what's your research determine?
1: Yeah, you know, ultimately this is a uh, i i hope uh, I I think uh, my co-authors and i think this is a hopeful book. We think that these <laughs> these are few things that can be solved, right? Uh we, we trace out three big themes and then we get, we, the end of the book is a 12 point plan with all kinds of, of very specific reform ideas, but they, but they fall under three main headings, three, three big themes. We think utilities have to operate with excellence, with openness and with equity. And I want to start with excellence. Excellence is the single most important thing we can do for trust and uh, And also, for affordability, you know I think for historically I shouldn't say historically, I think it, typically, when we get into conversations about what we should do to manage our utilities and the policies we should adopt, we set up this this conflict between high quality and uh and affordability. We worry that if we if we make these systems too good they'll become expensive, and people can't afford them. Well, what our research demonstrates is if the water quality and the service quality is not excellent, people are still going to spend their money, but they're going to be spending money on bottled water instead. They're going to be spending money on these commercial products instead. So building trust has to be excellent. It has to be excellent for everyone, and it has to be excellent everywhere. That That's the other key thing. It's not enough for for my utility to be good. In order to build trust, utilities everywhere have to be good. We, it's, we, we can't afford to allow other systems to fail as long as ours are good because uh, that, that hyperopia uh, takes root. People who who see disasters elsewhere will, uh, will, will respond locally based on things that happen far away. So excellence is number one. Um, let me get into what that means. I, I'm not going to get into the 12-point plan because we, we don't have all night on your podcast. But uh, let me just talk about the one, far and away, single most important thing we can do uh, to achieve excellence is consolidation. You know, 50,000 community water systems in the United States operated by tens of thousands of separate organizations. That fragmentation causes all kinds of problems. Small systems are undercapitalized. They have insufficient uh, expertise. And every time one of those small under-resourced systems has a failure, it undermines the trust everywhere else in, in the United States. So we have to clean up small system problems. They, 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 pray, they, they, they cause uh, problems for the most vulnerable populations of the country, and they, they seed and sow distrust everywhere. The other thing I'll say about excellence um, probably could be a topic of a whole other podcast is aesthetics. We need to take aesthetics seriously. One of the findings that emerges throughout our our book is that uh, utility customers trust their noses. They trust their taste buds. They trust their eyes. They aren't reading your consumer confidence report. They're looking at what's in their glass. How does it taste? How does it look? How does it smell? You know, I think there's a tendency for a lot of folks in the water sector to think of aesthetics as an afterthought, right? If they think of it at all. They're, they're, they're oriented around the health regulations of the Safe Drinking Water Act. And that's appropriate, right? We, we need to take those health, uh, those, those health regulations very seriously. But our book includes a call for us to take those secondary standards seriously too. That the aesthetics matter because the aesthetics is, is, is where people are making their, their consumer decisions as much as anything. Yeah, we need to make sure that there's no coliform contamination. But we ought to also make sure that the pH is good and there's not too much iron in the water that's going to make things look kind of rusty. We need to take those aesthetic conditions seriously under excellence as well. Openness. Openness, we need to to uh, open wide and dredge deep the channels of communication with our customers. You know, the utilities are are, especially water and sewer systems are literally buried. So people don't think about them until there's a disaster. We need to be... Uh, much more open with our customers. That means uh, letting them know about the condition of that infrastructure. When people drive down the street, they know there's a pothole. When they drive over or under a bridge, they can see whether there's rust or chunks of concrete falling off. So they know about the condition of that infrastructure. They can't see the buried infrastructure. So we need to find ways to make those invisible things visible, find ways to communicate to our customers how how hardworking and creative the people of the water sector are. So we think that there's a couple of things you can do there. One is uh, u- utility report cards. We, we think that there should be something much more accessible than a consumer confidence report. We think we should be telling people about the condition of their infrastructure in a way that makes it visible. So we can tell them things about you know, what's your replacement rate? Is it going to take you a thousand years to replace the water mains in your community or will it take you 50 years? Right? One of those is a better answer than the other. Uh, we need we need to communicate those things to the public. We also, uh, we argue for uh, active outreach um, rather than simply creating channels that, that expect the customers to, to reach out and or to, to tell us when they're having problems. We think we need to reach out to them and ask about their views on their water system. So that means scientific surveys. It means going out proactively to engage with the public instead of just sitting back and waiting for them to talk to us. Because remember, the people who trust the water sector least are also the least likely to ever say anything to anyone who runs a utility. So we got to listen for those voices uh, who otherwise wouldn't speak. And then the last one is equity. Equity is, uh, by that we mean, you know, water service has to be open and it has to be uh, excellent for everyone. So how do we do that? Well, we want to build distributional considerations into our decision making. Uh, people who have a technical background and, and think about how to design good public policy and how to engineer good water systems, we tend to think in terms of averages and medians. We tend to think about whether something is cost beneficial on average. Well, there could be policies that are good decisions on average, but are bad decisions for vulnerable people. Or there could be decisions that are that are vice versa. They're bad decisions maybe on average, but they're good for vulnerable people. And we need to build those equity considerations into how we make Our decisions. So we take, we need to take into account distributional impacts of decisions that we make. I'll give you just a very obvious and simple example, something like stormwater management. So we're going to build stormwater infrastructure. Well, we could design a storm sewer system and realize, well, gosh, if, if we build a system in a way that's going to protect our entire city, it's going to be extremely expensive. Uh, and on average, you know, the average customer, or the average resident of our city is not necessarily going to come out ahead. But if it turns out that the most flood prone parts of our community are also the poorest parts of our community, well, maybe we need to reconsider that because what we're really saying is on average, maybe things aren't cost beneficial to build these flood control, uh, these flood control facilities. But if for the poorest people in our community, it is advantageous to them, it cost beneficial to them, maybe we need to think about that. And we talk about some examples in the book about where where uh, utilities or organizations have taken these kinds of distributional considerations into account when making their decisions. And the key is here, the the organizations themselves, the utilities themselves need to be making these decisions and not sitting back and waiting for activists and lobbyists to tell them that there's a problem. They need to think about these distributional uh, this distributional considerations as they're making their decisions. So I've I've just rambled on a lot here, Dave. I yeah. hope I didn't put you and all the listeners to sleep.
0: No, not at all. I think it's fascinating, and uh, there are so many different ways we could go with what you what you related. Uh, I I think on the aesthetics issue, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I I think it's almost a mistake to say. Well, yeah, it looks like root beer, but you can, it's still drinkable, even though it's just tap water.
1: That's right. Look, MCLs, maximum contaminant limits, they're guardrails. They're not targets, right? They're there to make sure that we don't hurt people. <laughs> they're <laughs> not there to tell us that, that this is what we should be doing. They're telling us this is, this is the limit, right? This is where you shouldn't go beyond. Our targets really, we need to think about those aesthetic conditions because that's what our customers are thinking about. Yeah. It, it's very clear in the data that people who think that their, their tap water tastes weird are going to go ahead and, and drink bottled water. And, and I guess when we think about the costs of that, well, gosh, if we, if we end up spending a little more to treat our water in a way that takes care of some of the aesthetic problems, maybe, maybe a little less hardness, maybe, maybe a more balanced pH, do we have to do that? No, not according to the law. We don't have to do that, but if we want to win our customers' confidence, We will do do those things.
0: Got it. The other thing I'd like to ask about is consolidation. It's your number one element, number one item in your 12-point plan. Do you have any strategies for how to achieve consolidation?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a a hot issue, and a lot of folks are taking it up. Uh, Happily, there are a lot of different ways that you can get after consolidation. You know, there's a lot of different models. My co-authors and I are ultimately agnostic. Uh, this is a big, diverse country, and we think different approaches can work in different places. I mean the, mo- the most obvious and traditional way to think about consolidation is is physically intertying systems and you know, sort of merging two utilities into a single one, whether it's like a, a city government utility taking over a neighboring area, or maybe creating some kind of a regional authority. And those those systems can work, as those arrangements can work. And uh, where where it's physically possible to intertie, that's great. However, I think there's a growing recognition that physical interconnection is just the beginning of the idea of consolidation. And really the, the main constraints in these systems in a lot of ways are organization, technical, managerial, financial capacity to run these systems. You don't need to be physically intertied to run a lot of different water systems. And so, one of the ways you can do that is creating kind of a regional authority that runs lots of water utilities. That could be a public agency. However, there are also uh, private ownership models, there are uh, investor owned utilities that can. Uh, consolidate systems, a lot of utilities, some of the biggest in the United States run on this model where you've got a single organization that runs lots of small utilities scattered across a large geographic area. You can also do it under nonprofit co-op model. You know, some of these systems work very well. Some of them don't work as well as others. Um, as I, as I said, uh, it's a big diverse country and in some, we, should, it should not surprise us that some models work better in some places than others.
0: Yeah, I, I'd love to have you back on at some point so we can uh, flush some of these ideas out and and maybe go through more of the twelve point plan uh, as as time goes on. Um, but but for our purposes today, you've I th- it's been a great conversation, Manny. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I before we say goodbye, do you have a leave behind message that you want to make sure you get out to the listeners?
1: Sure. You know, I think most of your listeners are folks in the water sector.
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh,
1: in some ways, I'm preaching a little bit to the choir here, but the choir needs preaching too sometimes. So let me share this, this thought. In the everyday life of trying to run a utility, you, we can lose sight of the fact that tap water is the most intimate relationship between people and their government. It's this precious life-sustaining liquid that flows directly into our house 24 hours a day we cook with it we immerse our children in it we take it into our bodies it's a public service that we ingest that is different from almost everything else that governments do almost everything else that governments regulate it's different that way it is the most basic of basic services and when it is excellent it is easier to trust in the institutions of democracy when tap water fails It shakes our faith, not just in the water system, but in almost everything else in our lives. It is difficult to have faith in anything, uh, if, if your tap water service is bad. So that's what's at stake. And the great thing is most of, most of our utilities do a fantastic job. And I just want to communicate that that's what the stake, that's how important their work is. Uh, there's my take home message.
0: That is a very powerful uh, message uh, in, in a nutshell. I wish I could, was smart enough to come up with the, uh, the right words, but very well stated, very important message that uh, we all get out there. Um, so Manny, for those who want to f- learn more about the book, The Prophets of Distrust, uh, and about you and your new role at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where can they go to get that information?
1: Sure. You can check out my website. It's mannyteodoro.com. You can also find me at the University of Wisconsin's website. I'm easy to find there. Uh, if you want to pick up a copy of the Profits of Distrust, it's available through your favorite bookseller. It's also available directly through Cambridge University Press. And of course, amazon.com uh, has it as well. Uh, Profits of Distrust, uh, Cambridge University Press.
0: Great. Thanks. And I would also encourage all listeners to sign up for Manny's uh, newsletter that goes out periodically from uh, the website. It's uh, chock full of interesting information and, and you know, it provides Manny's uh, unique insights into the utility industry and water in general. It's, I, I find it a great read. So thank you for your uh, efforts in that regard, Manny.
1: Uh, Thanks so much,
0: Dave. Uh, you bet. Well, Manny… Again, always great speaking with you. I hope uh, we, we get you on sooner than uh, the couple of years it's been since you were last on. So we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for coming.
1: You bet. I look forward to it.
0: All right. Bye. I'm sure you know now why I describe Manny as one of the great thought leaders in the water sector at the top of the show. We spoke for about 40 minutes, and I could have spoken with him for hours longer to delve into all the ways we can improve the relationship between our utilities and our customers, especially those customers that are most distrustful of the institutions and governments and utilities that are serving them. Great lessons to be learned from Manny. And I hope to have, I I honestly want to have Manny back on the show in 2023 to uh, discuss his book in greater detail. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes for this episode. Uh, For information and links, just Google the Water Values Podcast, click the first link that comes up. Again, that's our home on the web that Bluefield Research provides the Water Values LLC and Bluefield Research LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement as part of that. They provide us a home on the web. So thanks, guys. If you still use Twitter, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page I mentioned earlier as well. Well, thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day and a great holiday season. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors again. Sponsors of the Water Values Podcast include the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, Can Do, Mentor APM, 374 Water, Woodard & Curran, and Terra and Xylem. This show wouldn't be possible without those great companies and industry leaders providing support. Again, thank you, the listener, for listening and subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. I truly appreciate it, and I hope all of you have a great and wonderful holiday season. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.